don't know about you, but I love that song. I can't sing it very well, but I love the truths. It helps me to remember. Not to, this isn't this morning's message, but, uh, you know, growing up as a boy and turning into a man, singing. Uh, that's what the lady's supposed to do. Or my sister, my four sisters, not me. I'm a man. I don't. I wasted so many years in my teenage and early adult life thinking it was more manly to mumble or keep my mouth shut when singing than I understood that it wasn't about me. When we're together and we're singing those truths, we're singing them vertically to God. We sing God is the object of our worship and the subject of our worship. We sing about God to God. That's what worship truly is. But it's also the vertical, vertical excuse me, horizontal aspect which we're singing to each other to remind ourselves what God's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Why would I want to keep my mouth closed? Now, if you stand close to me, you might say, well, you may want to think about just bringing it down just a little bit. That may be true. But I love singing more now than I did when I was a, a young man. And I don't say that with any pride. I say a little bit of shame. I wasted those years when I should have understood and been a little bit more mature what singing in Christ Church was about. So thank you, Jared, and thank you for the summers when they help us out with that. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 will be our verses for consideration. And though I, at most of the times, a lot of the times, try to at all times, try to keep the focus strictly up, and this is about God, it's not about any individual in the room, much less me, but... Sometimes when you get to talking, your easiest illustrations are about yourself and that sort of thing. And so you have to watch it and it turns into a bunch of personal pronouns, I and me. And I don't mean that to be the case. Having said all that, on Thursday of this coming week, by the time we meet together again next week, uh, my incredible, wonderful, godly wife and I will have been married 32 years. It'll be our wedding anniversary this coming uh, Thursday. And you reach a point in your life where you led your life, in a sense, alone for X amount of years, and then with your bride or your husband, then on, and then it turns from, I've spent more of my living life now with Sandra than I did by myself with my mom and dad and my sisters or whomever. And I say this with all sincerity, these aren't just nice words to say, and I'm not looking for an extra special lunch this afternoon when we get done. But I've been incredibly blessed, and I love her so dearly, and every single moment of every single day has been a joy. And you may say, come on, wait a minute now. But uh, I honestly mean that. Uh, my life has been better, more joy and quite frankly, more focus on Christ since he brought this wonderful lady into my life. And I love her dearly. You know, she didn't marry a guy who was going to be a pastor. 15, 16 years, he was just the guy that made the paycheck so she could stay home and raise the kids and that sort of thing. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. It was, it was a nice life. How would you ladies like it if your husband came walking in the room one day and got home from work and said, what if I told you I think God wants me to preach? All right, a total flipping of existence and a life. But she's never missed a step. And I'm sure there's been quiet times of crying about what in the world have we got ourselves into. 
but she's never let it be known to me or to our two sons. And I love you dearly. And I pray we have many, many years left to go. And if not, what we are emulating in our lives right now as a husband and wife is going to be even more glorious because in that sense, we won't need that anymore one day. Because the greatest sense of love, the greatest sense of joy will be found in Christ and his existence. And so, anyway, there's the, there's the I, me, mine moment for this morning, but it's more for the glory of God than anything else. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Before I begin, I want to thank Justin for doing an outstanding job last Lord's Day morning. Don't be alarmed. That is an alarm, but it is an alarm that serves no function. And so it's just a noise. And so JT is going to rescue us from the beeping over there. So don't, no upset. There's nothing going on. But I want to thank Justin for doing, you know, the easiest thing, thing to say is to fill in. I hope you understand that uh, by God's grace, if we continue together, which I hope, that, of course, that we are, uh, that these two young men will also continue and other men. And so I don't see it as a fill-in or a sub or anything like that. Um, I hope you were here last Lord's Day morning and saw and heard how God used a young man to deliver the truth of God's word and did an outstanding job. All right? The worth, the strength, and depth of a church is how many men God has allowed to give the gift of preaching and teaching to some degree. And he's blessed us incredibly so, and I don't just mean Justin as well. But I thank you for doing that. It allowed me and Sandra to relax and uh, have a little needed vacation and celebration of our anniversary. And so, brother, I appreciate you. Love you. And uh, can't wait to see how God continues to use you in our church. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I ask that you to follow along silently as I read aloud the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not, know, does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar 
and buttress of the truth. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, Father, I pray that you would find receptive hearts anticipating the truths contained to be lifted up off the page and by the attendance of the Holy Spirit dwelling within every believer's life and heart in this room to illuminate these truths, Father, not just for head's sake, knowledge's sake, but for transformation, for solidifying a group of believers gathered together, Father, that simply want to fulfill one purpose and plan, to be the church that your son gave his life for, with that weight, with that sobriety, with that worth, we humbly bow before your word. And so, Father, come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Give us ears so we can hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to be moved. And give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're continuing in our series now, a four-part series, which is a little bit out of the ordinary once we're through these kind of foundational or church essentials that we're talking about. Then we're going to flow back into more of the verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, expository preaching that we're committed to. We're still doing that, but we're doing it more in sort of a little quick topical approach. And so there's going to be a lot more teaching and kind of, I guess, classroomish sort of thing going on in these four elements. And we're at number three right now, the church essentials, and this morning, biblical church polity. Since we've been gathering together now, I think this is the fourth Lord's Day that we've gathered here in this building. We'll count one hay barn as an extra number five, a kickoff moment. But this is the fourth time that we've been gathered in here together. And I have to say that I'm very encouraged about the consistent faithfulness. I mean, folks go on vacation, and you should. And folks, folks have sick children sometimes, and that'll happen. But for the most part, same folks over and over again. That's a good establishment of the church. But you need to understand something. We're doing something sort of in reverse from the norm. The norm for a church plan is you start with a core group of maybe about three or four couples, six, eight, less than ten people. And you establish those things that are going to make up the church, and then you start branching out in concentric circles, inviting folks in. Uh, for most church plants, they don't even begin worshiping together in a formal sense for six or eight months down the road. We're doing the opposite. <laughs> we are fast-forwarding. We are, for most church planners, would love, after almost two years, to see consistently 100 people gathering together on the Lord's Day. That's wonderful, but they are progressing and putting the, the bricks of the foundation of the understanding of the church together slowly so that everyone's brought along. What we're doing is we're bringing everybody in and then putting the bricks together. So it's a little bit in reverse and with, quite frankly, the maturity of the folks that we have in this room, for the most part, nothing new has passed by your radar. In fact, for many people, even with the subject matter that I have this morning, most of you will say, yeah, i got a pretty good little grip on what you mean by that. For some in this room, it's going to be, mm, I need some more information. For others in this room, it's going to be, mm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And so that's a great lead-in to a wonderful sermon you should anticipate knowing that this is a little more static than the previous two. In the time that we've gathered together to me, and I'm paraphrasing, there have been basically two comments that have been made consistently from folks. I don't mean everybody, six, eight, ten people coming up to me. But here are some things that I'm hearing when I have conversations with some of you privately or before church begins. 
The first one is this, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm putting it in terminology as if the person is speaking to me. The first comment is this. If we're simply going to be another version of the same old type of church we have been, I'm out. What caused me and my family to come here was the dissatisfaction with what has shown itself to be dysfunctional and less than God-honoring. You need to understand that. Now, that may seem forceful and a little harsh, but those are the kind of the comments. Look, if this is just the same old, same old, I'm not sure that's what we're headed towards or what caused us to come out. The other comment is similar to it, but more in a positive sense in this sense. The second comment is this. We want to be a part of a church that is scripturally based, that values and nourishes committed church membership, and one that is led by the biblical model expressed in the New Testament. So you have somewhat of a negative as a cautionary. And I don't mean they're coming at me in confrontational way. They're just simply coming with a clarity of understanding with the folks that many of you have known each other for many, many years. Some new into the flow or stream of things, particularly for Sandra and I, less than two years with you. But noticing what God's doing in and through you, seeing the fruit in your life, that's basically the two categories of the comments that I've heard. If this is going to be the same old thing, lovingly, I, that's not what we came. On the other end of that, it's a heart's desire, overwhelmingly, to be a part of a church that is more New Testament-based, scripturally grounded, and a value and a nurturing and understanding of true church membership. So... With that thought in mind is why we're putting the four pieces of the puzzle together with these church essentials so that we're reinforcing that, so that we're establishing the bricks, if you will, of the whole foundation of this Christ church. So part one was the centrality of scripture. That was two Lord's days ago when I started that off and nobody in the room was rocked by anything that I said. I'm sure that I repeated things that most of you in this room have heard many, many times and I know your hearts and you know that, look, we're guided and directed by the word of God, leadership and laity. Every single solitary one of us, God's word is the only authority within any church. And that should be said of any church anywhere. But unfortunately, that's sometimes not the case. Scripture is the basis. Not the pastor's thoughts of how it should go this way or how it should go that way. Not some well-intended church members. Well, I think we should do this and I think... In, line, in alignment with God's word and God's, alone, God's word alone. Because scripture is sufficient. And we don't mean that sufficient, hey, it's a pretty good thing. We mean sufficient in the sense that we need no other basis for authority or a diagram or plan by which to become the church that honors God, that exalts Jesus Christ, and disciples more and more people into a loving relationship with him. The centrality of scripture. So that didn't rock anybody in the room, I don't think. Last Lord's Day, again, Justin did an outstanding job with part two, regenerate church membership. Now that got a little more hard in this sense. An understanding of what the church is made up of. Any church anywhere is not the size of the complex. It's not how big and broad the buildings are. It isn't the numbers of the programs that are existing that give a wide variety, a buffet of things to take your family to, depending on where you're at in your station of life. The church is made up of truly regenerate sinners saved by God's grace. So if we understand what a true church is, 
Then on the front end of that, in leadership and in laity, and let me just, a little sidebar, in all of these four essentials, guys, listen to me, it's not enough that leadership communicates it. It needs to be completed by leadership communicating, reminding all of this, and receiving it as a church family and holding each other accountable to these essentials. So it's one thing to stand up and deliver a message, pick out a text, have a theme, and deliver it. That's great. But if it's not received, if it's not appreciated, and quite frankly, for us as leadership, held accountable to that. You know, that section in John's gospel, that turning point when Jesus knew that his hour has come was when a bunch of Greeks walked in and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. All right, if our hearts, when we gather together, is anything less than that, then we're not a church and we really don't have any desire to gather together. So on the front end on that membership, true regenerate church membership, another thing, and we said it a couple of times already, right now I'm not a member of a church. <laughs> There's some letter over a couple miles away from here, but I'm not a member of that church anymore. And because we haven't begun formal church membership here, I'm not a member. So I'm kind of, I hate to use the word free agent, but we're all in this moment, okay? But it gives us a wonderful opportunity not to do this. And I think maybe some of it, it certainly, certainly wasn't because of Justin's delivery, but maybe clicking in your mind, hey, we're taking this stuff a little more serious that I'm used to in my life, some of you may be thinking, well, what are we going to do? Line up each other up in front of a firing squad, and if we do not say, you're out. Michael, bad answer. You're out, brother. Sorry. Cole, pretty good. You can stay. Uh, Chris, yeah, all right, you can stay, and that sort of thing. We're not, that's not it. And what I'm trying to do is get you to relax. All right, we need to be able to communicate the gospel and under how it's safe, not pass a theological exam for swords. And the nerves are writing papers and simmering and that sort of thing. So no one's getting up in front of everybody and giving their testimony. But what we want to value is what we would call membership interviews. That's for us beginning and then on down the road. We're not, this isn't a spiritual wish hunt. You're saved, you're not saved, you think your kid's saved. That's not what this is about. This is putting a foundation of understanding. If I'm going to say I'm saved, I need to understand what I'm saved from and how I'm saved, Right? So we need to understand that. And so it's going to be in casual conversation privately. It will not be public or anything like that. So relax a little bit on that. While it sounds harsh in the front end, it's not harsh. It's one of the most loving things that we can do for each other. And, are you ready? The most loving thing we can do for your children and grandchildren and the people in this area that we're going to be trying to reach from this point forward. Okay, so remember that as far as that. Now this morning... Biblical church polity. If I could do it over again, I would have taken number two and given Justin or JT number three. Because this particular one, okay, in church polity is going to be different. The first two, pretty much everybody in this room said, got that, true, amen, that's what we need to do. This one, number three, is going to be a little bit, for some, a little bit of a tweak. For some in the room, it's going to be, hmm, gee, I don't know. All right, but just know this. I'm probably going to raise more questions than provide answers this morning. And you say, oh, wonderful. That's great. If I get into every little nugget in this, I'll be in the weeds. This will be a 10-part series, and you don't want to hear a 10-part series on church polity. Okay? At worst, it's going to be a two-parter. But I believe with all of my heart, number three, 
is one of the major reasons, whether all of us in this room understand it or not, is why we're sitting in this room this morning in a practical, functional way. That's why we're here, or this is why they were here. So biblical church polity is going to be new to some, okay? And a little bit of adjustment in thought. And oh, by the way, we can't answer all the questions in here. Ask me, ask leadership, we'll keep answering, and there'll be another time where we'll be more specific to particular terminology and that sort of thing. I'm laying the, the, found work, uh, the foundation framework this morning on church polity. So what do we mean by the fancy term church polity? We simply mean this, the organizational or government structure of a local church. That's it. The organizational or government structure of a local church, or how a church organizes and administrates itself, who leads, decision-making processes, etc. Does that make sense? It's how we function, practically speaking, in that sense, but what we need to get back to is not dividing the practical aspect of administering and governing the church in isolation like it's a corporation or some business that we're engaged in in our secular lives. What is in our understanding of true biblical New Testament church polity is love, discipleship, and quite frankly, the mission of the church. To divorce the two or to manipulate church polity is quite frankly to cut off our own spiritual nose to spite our face because we will damage the things that we're trying to do by not functioning properly according to God's plan. And oh, by the way, this isn't Ken's plan. It isn't any other. Okay? So that's what we mean when we say church polity, the organizational government structure of a local church, which then begs the question for most of us. Okay? Because you've got to understand something. I've been in Southern Baptist life all my life. Everything that I've known as a structure, except for a wonderful six months out in Los Angeles, was what most of us have been engaged in with a local Southern Baptist church, okay? Nobody forfeited their salvation. People came to know the Lord. Churches are still there. But what I hope to show is through God's word and a willingness to submit is an understanding of a better way, a more biblical way, okay? That's what we're trying to communicate. So the question then should be begged for most of us, why do we need to worry about technicalities about how the church operates? We are a church, not a corporation. We need to be more concerned with worship and disciple making than we are with authority, power, and control. I couldn't agree more, except that we also need to function. You understand what I'm getting at? What happens in many churches? Now, I'm not pointing a finger here or there, and I'm going to do my best not to give living illustrations recently okay I'm gonna do my best because it's not the only place that's done that the churches that I grew up in and the church that I pastored before I came here were functioning what I felt like in a dysfunctional way but because the church polity was already set it was too many hills to die on and so I prayed that God would work even in the midst of what I felt convicted was not truly being obedient to God's word but for many of us, for most of us as Christians, let's quit worrying about the technicality and let's get down to the business, what we're supposed to be doing. Worship, disciple making, evangelism, who does this and who does that and why we do it this way and why we vote on this and don't vote on that and stuff like that. We need to forget about it. We're going to be something new. Let's be on something new than that. I would say this. We will never get to those good things of the mission of the church 
unless we're operating with true biblical polity. In other words, it nourishes, it feeds, okay, and it exemplifies those two things work together. I would propose to all of us that a commitment to a biblical church model of church polity does not detract from the mission of the church, but rather following the New Testament model for function and governance actually supports and nourishes the mission of the church. In other words, if I put it in a negative way, to do it the opposite way is to restrict the mission of the church or to bind the mission of the church. A true biblical New Testament model of church polity will reinforce, fuel, feed, more so than any other way we could possibly do it. What most of us have experienced as far as church leadership has actually left us overworked. And I'm speaking from both sides of the fence. I've not always been a pastor. You grow up as a young man in Southern Baptist life. What happens when you say, yes, I'll be a deacon? Now you're a deacon. Now you're teaching three or four Bible studies. You're on eight committees. You end up the chairman of the deacons. And just, it just every time that you come to church, it's work in that sense. Good work. But if you're not too careful, you become so burdened that the laity gets choked off. But by the time they leave out, which, by the way, our worship is outside even more so than it's inside, and our mission is more outside, I'm going to assume, in a wonderful way, we're all saved. Now, that's a dangerous assumption. But we come in here to gather together to be refueled, trained, as JT read from Ephesians chapter 4, by the leadership to go do ministry outside, not exhaust ourselves in here. So what we actually left was overwork, forced into positions we're not equipped for. Somebody's got to do it. We dreamed up this program, so we need workers. So we start begging people, and we do the subtle Jesus, what I call manipulation. Man, I just think that God just placed you on my heart. And Chris, I'm just telling you, brother, you're just so gifted in there. You ever heard that before? Man, I have. I've been on the receiving end of that. I'll be glad when I get my countryman mic and I don't lose my thing right there. Is that in the mail? All right, working on it. Okay. I find it hard to stand still for very long. We jam people into categories, and they have a heart to serve. They have a, a heart to show the fruit coming out in their life. But with a dysfunctional system of church polity, we jam people in situations that they don't belong into. And I don't mean that in a judgmental sense. It just becomes evident. And what we do is, well, just leave it well enough alone. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is you know that the nominating committee is working. And you're thinking, oh, man, if that phone rings in the middle of the night, I know exactly who it is. It's going to be Dudley Vance asking me to do four things at the church. And don't even pretend like you've never thought of that because <laughs> every one of you have. Yeah, well, let me pray about it, which is... The Jesus way of saying, oh, man, I hope Dudley calls three other people before he calls me back. Right? Do you understand? We giggle about that, but it's true. And I felt it as a young man, and some of you men and women in this room have felt it and experienced it as well. We're forcing people in positions that are not, they aren't equipped for. doesn't mean they're not equipped for something else. We're just jamming people into spots. We're creating things instead of recognizing the need and then coming alongside of that. We dream up a need, and then we start grabbing people and jamming it in there. And then you have the, uh, the what I call the stink eye from somebody. You know what? Everybody in this room is serving like nobody's business. But that Linda Crowley, let me tell you, she ain't doing it. You understand what I'm getting at? And she knows I'm kidding because she serves. 
or we force people in position and fostered a sense of entitlement and privilege. Here's where it starts turning to the ugly side. All right? When we're not following a New Testament model, we're putting people, we're overworking people, we're putting people in position just for the sake of putting people in position. And before you know it, you've created or you fostered the opposite of what you're trying to do. And there's a sense of entitlement and privilege more than Christ honoring freedom and sacrifice. It, it feeds the base nature of a sinner saved by grace as opposed to elevating, educating, maturing Christians into strong disciples so that they can go and make more strong disciples. We stifle that because on the front end, we don't have a true understanding of how a church is supposed to function from God's way. In short, what I'm trying to say with all this lengthy lead-in is there is a better way. And quite frankly, it is about me. This is what I've always wanted to be a part of, whether it be a pastor or a church member, whatever it happens to be. This is what my heart has told me after sitting under God's word for enough years to understand. This church that I'm in, thinking back to the church I was born and raised in, this church that I'm pastoring for almost 15 years in Brookhaven, we're getting along. But it could be so much better if we committed ourselves to God's word. Okay, so that's the lead in there. So what I'm going to do as we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, is I'm actually going to go the opposite from what I normally do. I usually go first verse, second verse, third verse, and walk all the way down and teach and let, it, let the outline be defined how the flow of thought crumb, comes through God's word. I'm going to do the opposite here because I want to get to the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy as a foundation, and then looking back and working backwards at the two offices, and oh, by the way, ready? Two, not one, and a hybrid of the two. Two. Okay, so let's begin in verses 14 and 15, the last two verses, with a refocus on importance. Now, as I lay this out for you, nobody in this room is going to be rocked, and we're not reinventing the wheel. But what we need to understand is what Paul is describing in verses 14 and 15 is crucial to never let slide back on what I would call the back burner or in the rear view mirror. It's got to always be on the forefront. You've got to constantly stir this thought up with a refocus on importance. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, speaking to Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Guys, listen to me. The second we let this foundational truth slip out of the forefront of who we are, what we are, why we're doing everything, is when we're going to slide down that slippery slope and what one would term many, many years ago as a downgrade controversy, we're going to allow other thoughts brought in. Let's just set our minds and our hearts to be submissive to what God has described his church to be. And with it comes a clarity and a check in every single solitary one of our hearts, including this pastor, of who this church belongs to. And it ain't me and you. And I see heads nodding. And I've got a wonderful... A little sidebar. You know how freeing it is to look into faces looking back at me with a hunger for God's word? I've never had that in almost 20 years of ministry. 
I've seen Miss so-and-so sitting there so checked out, I'm wondering what she's even doing at the church. And I don't mean just here, Matheson, all the way back to growing up. Mr. So-and-so, who hadn't paid a lick of attention to the first thing that's ever come out of your mouth. All right, I'm talking to a group of people reminding each one of us of the foundational elements that then propel everything else for us. And we can't let it slip. And oh, by the way, do ne never let your leadership forget it. Now, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. The way not to do it is to take a business meeting, which, oh, by the way, you're not going to have that wonderful experience anymore so that everybody can have a hobby horse or their own agenda that they can get up and say, that, that is a gateway for sinners to sin. All right? We've got to shut that off. This isn't our church. So look at the beginning of verse 15, that first phrase there, what I would call leadership's call. Paul says, if I delay, you may know. Now, when he uses that word you there in English, we need to understand it's in the singular. It means a personal word to Timothy. He's speaking to him specifically, okay, as leadership within that church. He says, you personally may know the possession of knowledge or skill necessary to accomplish a desired goal. In fact, if you look at chapter 1 and verses 18 through 20, it's another personal from Paul to his protege who sets the groundwork and leadership for that church. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. This charge I entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, God's word, the sufficiency of Scripture, is to hold hearts, minds, and wills in check. Right, for leadership at this point, all right, it's immediately, you may have these grand schemes and plans for this church, but they matter not. It doesn't matter if we grow a single stitch from here or there or we got to build a humongous campus on 82 or wherever God takes us. It's his church. So you understand and know, where do you get the information? You get the information from God. And where do you get the information from God? From Scripture. Now we're back to the essential truth number one, the sufficiency of Scripture. It's leadership's call and it's ladies' call. Listen to me, when those two go together, now you're cooking with peanut oil. When you have leadership that understands it and a laity that does not or wants to get a stiff neck about this, that, I kind of like that, but I don't like this and that sort of thing, instead of total submission to God's word, then you get this phrase, this is my church. That's where it falls in. Now what does he want him to know? Look back at verse 15. How one ought to behave, your version may say, to conduct himself. There's no mystery. It isn't, all right, you have Jesus dies on a cross. God's supernatural work of regeneration into an individual member. The assembly, which is what the word church means. The assembling together of those persons who have truly been born again. Now, go get them until my son returns or I'll call you home. That's the beauty or the sufficiency of scripture. It's going to leave nothing out that tells us. Not only who God is in his holiness, our sinfulness and our need of forgiveness, the way and means through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and what we are to do as a church. Guys, listen to me. The best of folks 
will splinter off back to our base nature and say, well, I'm going to tell you what, I'm a pretty good businessman right now, and I'm going to tell you, I think we need this, this, and this, based on the biblical principle, I mean, excuse me, based on the business principles that I've learned in my secular college that got me going here. Well, that's wonderful that it provides for your family. Are you ready? That gets checked at the door. It matters not to God. That's one of the toughest things as a human being. A pastor, laity, elder, which we're going to talk about in a few moments. No, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. That one from Timothy now is spread out to the church. That you all, not only you, I'm going to use you, Timothy, but I want you to teach the church how they should conduct themselves as a true church. I don't know about you, but I want to be found on that day saying simply this. In all of your frailty, in all of your shortcomings, in all of your missteps, you were obedient to what I called you to be. Not... You had this incredible ministry, which out of my ministry, I don't even like that phrase. I don't have my ministry. I have the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's apart from me. It's not mine. I didn't live and die for you. He did. And in leadership, all we're simply doing is reminding ourselves of that truth. Leadership isn't the origin of polity. Not here, not anywhere else. Scripture is. Scripture is. So as we're walking through this, and what I can tell already is going to be a two-parter, okay, because this is crucial for us, all right, is an understanding what has God prescribed through his word for us to understand how we behave, conduct ourselves as a church gathering together. Leadership isn't the origin of polity. Scripture is. It will tell us. Requires work putting some pieces of the puzzle together, synthesizing some thoughts across the New Testament. But he doesn't just simply say, go get them, and you figure it out, do the best job that you possibly can. Go find you some really good, educated, skilled folks. I've seen some of the most effective people in the church are the ones with the least secular education, but with a heart that is humble and contrite and wants to see the glory of God more than their own personal wishes and wants. Got a room full of leadership and lady that has that heart and that desire, and now God is going to do what He's going to do. And the gates of hell will never prevail against that. Width and numbers, wonderful to have full room. That's up to God. Submission, duty, responsibility, obedience, faithfulness, that's our responsibility as we turn to God's Word. Okay? So, what is this crucial knowledge? That keeps our behavior pleasing to God. What is it we're supposed to know? We'll look back at verse 15. Several things here. The owner's identity. Now we've spoken a little bit about that, but Paul wants to hammer it home to Timothy. You're talking about somebody that you can learn from. You see a guy here that wrote three quarters of the New Testament. That planted churches all around the rim of the Mediterranean. Used singularly probably more than anyone else to establish the church. And he is constantly reminding his protege, the person that he's appointing to put in positions around these churches planted, the foundation of truth that this church does not belong to me. Look at the ownership's identity, the second half of verse 15. If I delay, you may know how to conduct yourself or how you ought to behave in the household of God, in the household of God, which is... The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
See, owner's not identity. Simply, the church belongs to God. Now, there's no one in this room that would disagree with that, right? So why is it we have such a hard job of consistently thinking, letting our thoughts, our anticipations, our expectations of the church, how we fit in, how we submit to leadership, how we function as a church, why does it get so sidetracked at times that you get to the worst statement that any human being, particularly Christian, professing Christian, will ever say is, this is my church. Now, I don't mean the simple statement, this is where I go to church, that's my church over there. I'm talking about deep-seated within that it's supposed to go according to my plan. This is where I'm comfortable. This is how things are supposed to be said. This is how it's supposed to be structured. These are how things are supposed to be decided and the whole bit. You get so trapped within your own base nature as soon as you understand or miss the understanding of the ownership, the identity of the owner. Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and I'll speak to that word in just a minute, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This isn't just filling rooms. This isn't just helping raise kids together. Now, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with those two things, but they can be incredibly dishonoring to God and dismantling his church when they become the emphasis and a submission to his will becomes secondary. Even though we spread a little layer of Jesus on top of it just to make our conscience feel less guilty. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. The church is God's own possession to the praise of his glory. A constant reminder. The natural default of the best of churches is when leadership and lady take their mind and their heart off of the owner of the church and the church becomes mine. And now you've got a hundred pastors and a hundred thoughts that it ought to be this and it ought to be that. You said, but we're people and we've got thoughts and understand. We're preferential people. That's right. Are you ready? We're supposed to be fighting that old self to allow putting on Christ and the new self with one mind, which is ours. And are you ready for this? You've got every stitch. I'm going to have to come out of here. Every stitch that you need to understand the mind of Christ. You ready? It's right here. Well, I don't like the way we're doing such and such, Brother Ken. Really? Can you show me in God's word where we're going against his command? You understand what I mean? Now, I see he has nodding. I know you understand this. But we've got to remind ourselves of this because I, we, are as capable as any crazy incidents that I've seen. Here I go. In the last year and a half, to quite frankly, sitting in meetings of so-called leadership with my jaw on the floor, Listening and identifying that man has no business being in this room. But the rest of the church can't see that. What happens when you take your mind and your heart and you understand who owns every church and any church? I'm as capable. And with all due love and respect, you're just as capable. We take our minds and our hearts off of that. Then let's look at the third phrase in verse 15 is the weight of stewardship. The weight of stewardship. Look at verse fifth, back at verse 15. Again, if I delay, you may know one, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. All right, there's the weight of what we're doing. 
One of the most crushing things in a pastor or in leadership heart is seeing a so-called believer, based on their profession of faith and their faithfulness at a church, act outside of God's will with them acting just as strongly in sin as which you would prefer and God demands for them to be displaying in Christ. And you're sitting there thinking, it's not anger. I'm not angry at anybody. I'm disappointed. I'm saddened. I'm grieved in those moments. But I can tell you, it's not just here. I've had it at other places. I've had it in my home church. Men that I looked up to all my life. I was born and raised there. And then once I got to maturity and they were mature in their age, up into leadership, and I'm thinking, that's not the God that I thought he was. It's because we think this is something that is like J. Well, I don't know if they have J.A., Rotary Club, Lions Club, Elks Club. As if somehow the, the Church of the Living God is on par with some man-made, created organization that does wonderful things for the children in our community. None of that's going to last. None of that's going to last. None of that is founded on the blood, shed blood of God's Son to redeem you and I. And it is not going to go into the next eternity for life without end because it doesn't have any degree to which it glorifies God in the purest sense. Only the church does that. It's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And Paul's using a metaphor here. The church is the foundation and pillar that holds up the truth to a lost and dying world. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're a light on a hill. You don't take that and hide it under the bed or under the basket. You want it to shine. Not just shine and boy look how many folks we got. But shining in the purest sense. I'll tell you what. That little bunch down there. And watch, Help me out. Red Star or Big Star? What was the name of this place? Big Star. That goofy bunch is down there in a grocery store right now. But I'm going to tell you what. I went down there a couple of times and I've seen even more importantly the men and the women that are going there. i tell you what. That bunch takes it serious. And may I say this, and you can replace me in two seconds. I don't want to have any part with the church that doesn't have a heart to be what Christ died to gain. Do you understand? I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be in it. I don't want my family in it. And I don't want to be in leadership in it. Now, that's not, you can go find better. I promise you that. But that's this man's heart. And I can't help but think that you think the same way. As well, God, that, that is a weight of stewardship. Even when the thoughts, well, I'm going to tell that brother what I really think of him in that meeting. Screaming at other believers across the table. Everything, but I'm thinking he's getting ready to come across that table at another brother. Not just one time, but consistently. What is going on in here? And there's a couple guys in this room who were in the room in that time. Sickening. But walk out of there with chest like this. Yeah. You think you won. Do you really think you won? Brother, I love you enough that I'm concerned for your soul. And what anything I could say back in response in so-called human leadership. Or to exercise any get back or payback on you is nothing compared to a God who proclaims, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I, I, I don't want to be in that dark shadow. 
And the only way to stay out of that dark shadow is to stay submissive to the word of God. So we've got to refocus on importance. Now going up. Let me know. 1117. That, that, that cannot be correct. That's not what time it is. <laughs> this one is very, very important because this one is different. Okay. Two other things I want to illustrate. I'm going to bump and I'm going to come back next week. Deconstructing and elevating. Deconstructing and elevating, and then number three, identifying and utilizing. And that contains the understanding of the two offices that you see in the prior verses before verses 14 and 15. If only here in Timothy. I want to touch on the deconstructing and elevating, and I'll, re I'll leave the identifying and utilizing for later. Okay, Deconstructing and elevating. What do you mean? Folks, we've got to deconstruct our long-term understanding of what a deacon is. We've got to break it down and get back to a biblical understanding of that particular wonderful deconstructing and yet elevating and then get into another category that I don't know what it is in Southern Baptist life. We see elder, overseer, and bishop over and over, over a hundred times in the New Testament and we pretend it's not there. I, I'm 60 years old, and for the most part, for the three churches I've been a part of, completely acting like it's not there. That's those Presbyterians that do that stuff, not us. I'm pretty sure there is no denominational dividing lines in any of God's word. He couldn't care less if you're Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of God, whatever it happens to be. So we can't categorize scripture into denominational preferences. So let's hit deconstructing and elevating real quick. Verses 8 through 13. 8 through 13. I'm going to read through it, but we're going to actually going to get into it next week. Again, we're going from the bottom back. We're going to reverse. Deacons, as opposed to verse 1, anyone who aspires to be the office of overseer. They are not the same thing. Okay? They're not the same folks, and they're not the same offices. we got to split that baby back to where it's two distinct individuals both crucial for a church not the varsity and the junior varsity we gotta get past that deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience let them also be tested first that whole idea you know what john i think johnny would take off in discipleship if we made him a deacon you ever been in that position you ever pressed into your buddy, man, if we, we could kickstart, man, I bet you if we get Mike in there, we could kickstart him. He's right there. He's growing. He's showing some potential. Let's jam him into leadership and see what God's going to do. That doesn't work. Let him be tested first. In other words, guys, it's not going to be any mystery to anybody in this room who is an elder and who is a deacon. You've known each other for years. You've seen the fruit or the lack thereof. You've seen the giftedness. And the giftedness for this and the giftedness for that. It's not going to be a mystery. It's not going to be some weird thing. Verse 10, let them also be tested first. Then let them, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me read you this one quote. I'll do it again next Lord's Day. This is from John MacArthur's commentary on this specific section in God's Word. I want you to listen carefully. Okay? on this deconstructing and elevating. The word deacon there that's rendered for me and you in English, diakonos, and the related terms diakoneo and diakonia. Diakoneo means to serve. Diakonia means service appear approximately 100 times in the New Testament. Only here and in Philippians chapter 1-1 are they transliterated deacon or deacons. In other words, signifying an office. The rest of the time it simply means this. Serving. Serving. Now, are you sure on that time that you gave me? All right. The ham may be burning or three star will be there, I promise you, okay? They'll still be there, best that I know. Okay? We've got to reach a point in maturity that there are men, there are men, and I'm not going to get into specifics this morning. There are men that are out deaconing almost any other men that are recognized as deacons in any given church. But we go to the easy slam dunk that he's disqualified because of this, that, and the other thing. Meantime, he is tearing up in service in the church. Now, usually those men couldn't care less about being called a deacon. What I'm trying to do is level out this understanding or deconstruct this idea that deacons are the leaders of the church. In some sense, yes, but in a greater sense, no. Deacons lead by serving, and they are crucial. They have a good standing for themselves. If you get to the original institution of deacons in Acts chapter 6, the tail end of it isn't the choosing of those seven men. The end of it is the people that are coming to know Christ. And the spread of the gospel, that's happening because they are fulfilling the role that God prescribed for them. What's happened now is we've woven these two, elder and deacon, together. And quite frankly, for some part, excellent. But two or three at any given time, so mismanaged, so misorganized, so unqualified in that sense. We're not talking about forfeiting salvation at this point. We're talking about a function of church polity, that they are not best served to make the whole unit go. They are, in fact, dismantling it. Maybe for the most part, not intentionally. But because we don't have the polity right, we have created a, a functioning, dysfunctional church. It doesn't honor God. They're translated deacon or deacons. The rest of the time, they are translated by various English words. Only in those two passages, passages is the deacon elevated to official status. The rest of the time, the terms are used in general, non-specific sense as serving. I'll give it to you quickly. My biggest bullet in all of this, so the biggest change is in understanding. Folks, we've got to have a biblical understanding of what a deacon is and what he is not and what an elder is, and what he is not. All right, we can't simply pay, let our Presbyterian friends have that, that, that's not in there, okay? It's simple as this, guys in the room in particular, all right? Deacons lead by serving. Elders serve 
by leading. And you ready? This isn't varsity, junior varsity. This is walking together, fulfilling the roles that quite frankly, the elder may not be able to function like the deacon, but the elder can do for the deacon. And the deacon may not be able to function as the elder, but he needs the elder. elder. When we've got that in concert, now we have a New Testament policy. If we do not have that in concert, we do not have biblical church policy. My wife says this kind of stuff. <laughs> and all those nice things that I said, can't violate that. <laughs> That's part one. Again, I probably raised more questions than gave answers this morning. But I know what the answers are. And they're not here, and they're not here. They're right here. Let's commit ourselves to be obedient to them. Wait. Pray with you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the totality of your word, the sufficiency of your word, the truth of your word. Because, Father, opposed from that, none of us contains truth. We've got some great ideas, really firm in our convictions, but not truth. The only truth is your word. Find us submissive to that. For your honor and your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.